Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. This time on Vet Story. Let's make a change. Let's action speaks louder than words. Absolutely, the lethality uh, is a is an aspect in terms of what I believe is reasonable for a gun owner to have. We we have a constitutional right to keep and bear arms. Does there have to be a modicum of, of regulation? Absolutely. But I think there are other things that take precedence. We need to have a security guard or perhaps even a you know, police officer or, you know, have veterans who work in the schools. We can maybe both agree with vastly different experiences sure. that it's time to talk. Yeah, it's past time. What's going on? I'm Phil Briggs, and welcome to another episode of Vet Story. Now, with the recent school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida still on our mind, we're going to talk about what the hell can be done to make schools safer. Most impactful were the voices of the teens affected by the tragedy. Students like 17-year-old Alex Wind. Has it come so far that students have to sit outside the White House and demand change and pretending to be dead? People are dying. Children are dying. When does it stop? Kyle Kashev. If someone like myself, I've been a strong Trump supporter, someone like myself has been able to go to the middle ground and understand that there needs to be changes, that, that's great. And that really shows how important what we're doing right now is. And the soundbite that really got to me, the anger and the frustration that comes from Cheryl Aquaroli. But as a parent myself, it was Andrew Pollack, father of slain Parkland student Meadow Pollack, whose words really stuck. Should have been one school shooting and we should have fixed it. And I'm pissed because my daughter I'm not going to see again. It's just not right and we need to come together as a country and work on what's important. And that's protecting our children in the schools. That's the only thing that matters right now. So what can be done? Many, again, are calling for strict gun control. And a group of veterans are on Twitter, and they're calling for an outright ban on the AR-15 rifle. They started exercising their voice under the hashtag, Vets for Gun Reform. Daniel Kim, Army, and I was an infantryman for uh, 10 years between the uh, National Guard and uh, active duty. Daniel, it was a pleasure to meet you and uh, observe all the different 
posts under hashtag vets for gun reform. And if I could, I, I, I want to share with everybody on the podcast here what I saw you write. And uh, your your tweet really spoke to me. Um, it says, as a soldier, I wielded a rifle that could hit targets out to 500 meters. Its sole purpose was and is to take as many human lives as effectively as possible. As a civilian now, I see no need for any of my fellow citizens to have unfettered access to similar weaponry. I don't think I have to ask you what you meant by that because you were very succinct and it's direct. Uh, but share with me a little bit more on why you feel this way. Sure. I've I've fired the civilian AR-15 and it's demonstrably the same weapon as the original M16A2 that I qualified on back in 92. I mean, fine. Uh, I've got gun nuts uh, trolling me. Oh, it's not the same rifle. Uh, there's no three-round burst mode. Well, show me an instance in uh, combat where anybody used the burst mode. And uh, I'd be hard-pressed uh, to find that. We're trained to uh, use the semi-automatic mode to hit our targets, our, to hit human beings with as few rounds as possible. And that is what Eugene Stoner wanted that rifle to do back when he first designed it in the early 60s. And that's what it's still intended to do uh, now in 2018. So, you know, if you're telling me that you need a semi-automatic AR-15 to hunt deer or whatever else livestock, uh, is threatening your home, then God bless you. I, I honestly don't think you need it. Can I just ask, and this is where I'll play devil's advocate here, is its lethality that much greater than, say, uh, my thirty out 6 or something that has, you know, maybe five rounds in the chamber? Absolutely. The lethality uh, is, a, is an aspect in terms of what I believe is reasonable for a gun owner to have. Listen, I've owned guns, primarily handguns. I have no problems using those uh, handguns for their intended uh, purpose, at least my intended purpose, which was, which was just target shooting. Uh, I never foresaw any need for home self-defense. Um, besides, I mean, I was living in Arlington. Uh, there's very little uh, violent crime in Arlington County. Um, so that was never an issue. Um, you know, these are handguns that, in my case, was a Colt that uh, had a seven-round magazine or a uh, revolver. Obviously, uh, only carried a six in the wheel. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't worried about, you know, trying to get rounds down, a um, number of rounds down range as quickly as possible, uh, which you can do with an AR-15. Uh, you know, you've got 30 rounds in that magazine. And, you know, what do you need 30 rounds for? And I guess that's where it's challenging my convictions. Uh, you know, when I look at this story and I, and I hear all these different diverse opinions on it, and then, and then there's the devil's advocate in me, the philosopher in me that says, you know, I also don't need a Corvette that does, you know, 120 miles an hour because, I mean, we all know, uh, in large metro areas like Washington, D.C., you know, I'm more apt to be stuck in traffic going zero miles an hour than I will have the freedom to go 120. But they still make a vehicle that does that. So should that prohibit me from buying it because I can't have that speed? 
should a gun whose ability is greater than another gun, don't they both go bang? Don't they both kill people? I mean, these these devices weren't made to heat up hot chocolate. I mean, they were all guns inherently are made for to shoot a bullet. Yes, and there's also the lethality argument uh, for the original assault rifle uh, ban during the Clinton administration, which President Bush uh, the second uh, repealed, which has obviously opened the floodgates to more and more sales of such lethal weapons. And a huge driver of that has been the NRA. I quit my membership in the NRA. I mean, this is going back 20 years when they really started morphing into a shill for the gun uh, manufacturers. You know, not so much as their original intent, which was as an advocate for people who wanted to either learn how to shoot or take a firearm safety course or introduce people like, say, my children uh, to what firearms can and cannot do. You know, once they became a lobbying organization, it's like, oh, wow, I, I, I can't be behind this group anymore. I mean, that goes for any group that's uh, either too far to the right or left. Hmm. So it was really more their politicizing and managing the marketing of weaponry. Absolutely. Okay. Is there anything else you could think of that could be explored to possibly make not just schools safer, but make, you know, shopping malls safer and make, uh, you know, national sports games safer? I mean, is there any other kind of avenue or any other sort of thing that you could imagine that might also contribute and help the safety of the general public? Listen, I'm I'm in New York City, so I'm in one of the arguably safer cities in this country. And one of the biggest reasons is the fact that when I applied for my uh, gun license here in the state of New York, or in New York City, I should say, uh, I it was a six-month process for me to get my license. And that calls a lot of people who otherwise would not qualify under New York City uh, rules for gun ownership. And that has definitely had an impact on why violent crime with guns is at such a low point in the city in the city's history. Interesting. So you're attributing the fact that there is greater gun control there to the overall public safety. Yeah, yes. The I mean besides the, obviously the waiting period, I mean just the full background check definitely uh, plays a role. Of course, sadly, that's not to say that there isn't crime, and New York is no different than any other major metro area. You know, there is still crime in areas, and people do still use guns. I was thinking more along the lines of, is there anything other than, say, gun control, any other measures, any other steps you thought people could take to make you know, something like a Yankees game safer as everybody enters in the stadium or, uh, you know, a, a, a shopping area safer. Are there are there other steps that, that uh, you know, with your experience in the military, are there other steps that we could be thinking of as veterans that maybe aren't being talked about as much? Uh, I wouldn't think so, no. It's, it's just a matter of trying to uh, control access. Control access. Control access. Control access. But does a hashtag accurately represent the thoughts of veterans? Our next guest doesn't think so. Chuck Porter and just a guy, just a veteran. Nice. Where'd you serve? When'd you serve? I uh, went in the Marine Corps in 1990, served through 1996. Spent the next uh, lifetime. I'm a retired law enforcement officer as well. 
and we met in the Twittersphere. Let me just set the stage real quick. I first saw your post under a thread that was the hashtag vets for gun reform. And this is what Twitter user Angry Staff Officer wrote. I've been a victim of gun violence here in the U.S. I've carried arms for this nation in Afghanistan. I am a gun owner. And it's past time for us to institute common sense gun reform. And then they ended it with the hashtag vets for gun reform. Now this specifically is where our paths crossed when I saw your reply to that tweet. And you wrote, I love it when the veteran community gets lumped together by some hashtag campaign. Awesome. Thanks for speaking on my behalf. Now I'm picking up a bit of sarcasm there, but uh, expand on that. Tell me, tell me how this campaign made you feel. I hate to use the word troubling because I don't want to over dramatize anything, but I would have a problem with, you know, whether it be vets for gun reform or whether it be vets for chainsaws for toddlers. I, I don't like the idea of being painted with that broad brush because the military is merely a microcosm of society as a whole. So we're not this one-minded, monolithic, Borg-type institution. We're a bunch of individuals that all happen to raise our right hand and essentially donate some time to the service of our country. So let me pause from our interview real quick. My next step would be to talk about his feelings on gun control. Naturally, people under the hashtag vets for gun reform are in favor of some sort of restrictive legislation, maybe a ban on certain types of semi-automatic rifles, a.k.a. AR-15s. Regardless of what it is, I tend to always think of veterans in the Twitter sphere and online as all being hardy combat war fighters that have seen the worst of the worst and they're coming at this whole argument with a whole hell of a ton of life experience. But Chuck was quick to point out that I was again doing the same thing that a lot of these hashtag campaigns do. Just so we're clear, I was an aviation mechanic. I worked on Hueys and Cobras for six years which, in my opinion, is the greatest job anybody could ever have. Now, my daughter jumped out of airplanes for a living for four years, and she would disagree with that. But <laughs> my, you know, my, my life experience after the Marine Corps in law enforcement uh, is really what shaped my – it shaped who I am today because I got to see the worst that humanity does to one another day to day mm -hmm. and didn't have to go anywhere to see it. Hmm. But as far as my stance on, on, on you know, the topic at hand, listen, man, it, it, we, we have a constitutional right to keep and bear arms. It, it, it's number two. It's, it's number two because, you know, it's got the back of number one. And without number two, all the others are in jeopardy. I mean, I think we could all agree on that, right? Sure. So does there have to be a modicum of, of regulation? Absolutely. But I think there are other things that take precedence. And I think mental health and I think the, the rearing of decent kids who are ready to go out and be productive members of society. There's a million things I think that we can do first and foremost before we start infringing on people's constitutional rights. Now, again, I'll pause from the interview and step back and sort of take it all in. And it seems as though every, every tragedy that happens in America related to gun violence is followed by a call for some sort of action. And then, as he mentioned, 
a call to ensure that our Second Amendment right is still upheld. But it's what he told me next, framed by his experience as a law enforcement officer, that resonated deepest with me. And I would never compare my experience as a cop to the experiences of, of you know, the men and women that have come off the battlefield, whether it be, you know, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, or the global war on terror. I mean, they, they have dealt with stuff that has left an indelible mark on their psyche, without a doubt. I, I, I have just seen those things here. But in no way would I, would I you know, try and, and, and put myself on that same plane. But I've seen the outcome of gun violence. I've seen the outcome of domestic violence. I've seen the outcome of violent violence. I, I've seen people that have been beaten to death. I've seen people that have been stabbed. I've seen people that have been shot. I've seen people that have killed themselves. I've watched fire departments spray blood off the highway after a wreck. I've seen people put in body bags. I've told parents that their children weren't coming home. I mean, I, I've buried my friends. I've had to look their spouse in the eye and apologize for not being there fast enough. So maybe I could have done something. You know, I, I, I've seen and experienced these things, and that shaped who I am as a, you know, a 40-something-year-old middle-aged guy with no hair. Mm, well, that and raising three daughters. <laughs> and I'm in the midst of raising a daughter myself, losing my hair, 40-something. Well, so good luck. I, <laughs> I can say that uh, uh, I not only appreciate your service, but I feel empathetic towards where you've been, brother. Um, let me just wrap up real quick and say... If the world gave us the power right here on this phone call to make some sort of substantive change to make the world a little safer and the world a little better, can you think of anything off the top of your head that maybe isn't getting a lot of discussion openly in the public and in the media that might make a difference? Oh, man, that's I think that this is such a multi-layered, multifaceted discussion. I don't know that there is any one one topic or one thing that is going to be the fix-all. I think it's going to take a multitude of things, but I believe that good parenting and I believe that you know strong mental health communication, especially within the family, because without the family, you know, the mental health system is, is crippled. So families have to recognize when a family member's having trouble and mm -hmm. friends have to recognize when a, when a, when a person's having trouble. But other than that, man, I, I think this conversation is much deeper than, than, you know, a red pill or a blue pill. Not red pill, blue pill. Well said. With your experience, do you think there could be something to be done in the schools or in public settings? And I don't just limit this to schools, but like shopping malls and sports games. Should we be looking more at implementing things through metal detection and guards and some sort of secure people that can help keep everybody safe and deter anybody from coming into a public space with some sort of ill will and device to do harm? My God, man. You know, to... To think that we're even having to ask this question in the 21st century, to me, is is mind-boggling. You know, I've I've heard advocacy for you know armed guards in schools, and and you know here in where I live, we've all all our schools have a resource officer, and you know it's it's a deputy sheriff that is assigned to each individual school. So, you know, a lot of these things are already in place in certain you know jurisdictions, certain states. The, the conversation, the, the, the topic itself is troubling because we're asking each other, do we need to do we need to, to have security at the shopping mall? Are we securing ourselves from each other? 
I mean, is that where we are as a country right now? Is that we have to secure ourselves from one another? I, I don't know, man. Phil, it's 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 tough. And and we've discussed before, even on you know, in, in my other profession with, with my callers. Oh yeah, real quick pause on the interview and I'll tell you that when our phone conversation here ended, he told me that he actually does a weekly radio show down in South Carolina. Okay. Anyways, back to his statement. If something bad's going to happen, it's going to happen. There are soft targets all over the place. So do we take the time to harden those soft targets? Yeah, probably, but to what degree? Or do we harden the targets internally? Do we make us more more difficult to be a target? Do do we teach and train ourselves in one another to be hard targets? It, it, there's got to be a, a level of personal responsibility and personal accountability, and we can't continue to rely on our rich Uncle Sam to take care of all our woes for us. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think in that it encapsulates in so many ways there is one problem, yet there are hundreds of angles and things that need to change or things that need to happen in order to eliminate that one problem. And, you know, it's an onion, man. Kind of get dizzy thinking about it. But, man, do I appreciate this phone call and do I appreciate hearing, you know, from your background because uh, Twitter is so vast and there's so many people out there with just, like, kind of usernames or fake handles and you don't know who's real and who's not. Um, this was really genuine, and I'm glad I discovered you in the Twitter sphere, buddy. Thank you for uh, reaching out and being a part of this podcast. Man, it's my pleasure, Phil. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, and uh, you know, look forward to crossing paths again, bud. Now, getting past gun laws, there's got to be something else we can do, right? That's when I found a recent article written by our next guest. I'm Paul Radner. I'm a writer, and I write primarily for BigThing.com. Very cool. Uh, for those that aren't aware, and it was actually my first time on the website, what is BigThink.com? Uh, yeah, BigThink.com is a knowledge forum. It's a site where experts share opinions on uh, various important issues of the day. It's nonpartisan. It's just, you know, intellectual ideas, you know, which hopefully can stimulate this discussion. And your most recent article will certainly stimulate some discussion as it's really uh, been a baseline of a lot of discussions I've had over the last week. But before we get to that, if I could just ask a little bit about your background. Yes, uh, I'm a writer. I have a background in filmmaking. I actually you know, lived and worked in, uh, you know, dreaded Hollywood for a period of my life. But uh, really, I have focused for a number of years uh, on writing. And, you know, I've written for Huffington Post and I've written for some other publications and you know, I enjoy uh, writing intellectually stimulating pieces on you know, major topics of the day. That's great. Let's dive into the one that I wanted to share with the audience today. And uh, this came out almost immediately after the horrific tragedy we saw in Florida. And I was taken with it because it was really a sensible look at what we can do to help eliminate or at least mitigate these recurring tragedy that just seems to happen again and again with no real end in sight. And uh, if I could, Paul, I'm going to read just, you know, the headline and get through the lead that, that really kind of hooked me. And then I'll have you sure. just kind of walk me through it. First, uh, the headline. There's one way to stop school shootings without taking away anyone's guns. You begin the story by saying another day, another horrible school shooting in America. This time, sadly, 17 kids were ruthlessly gunned down 
at Majory Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. By now, we've all gone through this nightmare many times and know the cycle that will follow. There will be blame thrown around. Some will try to understand why the gunman did it. But nothing will change. Congress won't change. We'll have to wait until the next shooting to do this all over again. What could we do today to make a school safer? Yeah, what the, I'm a parent, you know, I have two small kids. And whenever these things happen, you know, my heart just stops. I'm imagining my own kids being somehow caught up in this horrible situation. And these types of things seem to be happening so often these days that, you know, I, I just feel when it happened again the other day, you know, I just felt this profound sense of frustration. You know, like oh, we're spending a lot of time, we adults, you know, arguing over various issues, which are admittedly important. But, you know, in the, in the process, our kids are getting shot. And that really prompted me to think, you know, how, how can we move forward from here? You know, the country is full of discussion and some disagreement, certainly divisions, some might say. But, you know, nonetheless, we just I think everyone can agree that we don't want our kids to be unsafe. And so uh, I think that, you know, one simple solution is to make the kids safer in the schools that they're in. And, you know, f I think for that, we need to have metal detectors. Uh, we need to have a security guard or perhaps even, a, you know, police officer or, uh, you know, most uh, actually excitedly, I think maybe in, in, a, in a very good idea would be to, um, you know, have veterans who work in the schools who will help keep, keep the kids safe. And, you know, what I've done is uh, trying to kind of make this idea a reality. I've crunched some numbers just to see broadly if this is something, you know, crazy that we're talking about. You know, the government sort of people always throw around crazy numbers. And I thought, well, why don't I try it? <laughs> and, right, right. You know, and I have a background in, you know, science and engineering, actually. I, I went to a, a school for engineering some time long ago. And I, I now put my skills to use and I came up with some numbers, which, you know, admittedly, you can fine tune, you know, but I feel like they give a fairly accurate representation of the scale of numbers we're talking about. Let's begin yeah, with that, ahead. because, uh, you know, as we look at some math, you know, you cite uh, Justice Department estimates on how much metal detectors cost. Walk me through that. I found, you know, I did some research on what uh, various high schools or universities have done so far. And, you know, I found a you know, certain variety of prices, but ultimately uh, it comes down to about $5,000 is what we're talking about for, you know, the machine itself, the metal detector for a high school, plus the cost of labor. You know, you need somebody to operate this machine. And, of course, uh, you know, this uh, might depend upon how many entrances and exits the school has. So, you know, the numbers could vary somewhat based on the you know, particulars of the school, but still uh, we're not talking something, you know, unbelievable. Okay, I'll quote your article for this next part uh, about the staffing of these metal detectors. And uh, you said an additional cost of the detectors, uh, in addition to the cost of the detectors, would be the salary of the people who operate them. Uh, somewhere between 12 right. and $20 an hour, according to one source, uh, additional $2,000 per week for the requisite school staff with about 36 weeks of instruction time per year. You're looking at, uh, you know, for one school in particular, an additional $72,000 a year in extra money mm -hmm. uh, that would serve as somebody to work this metal detection area and watch the kids come in and out of the school. What I thought was really cool, and I want to go kind of off script here from the article, but you'd mentioned it at the beginning of our chat here, using veterans. And I thought, right. what a cool kind of symbiotic thing we could do with taking 
veterans that have maybe been excited about a career path in education and saying, listen, as you immediately transition out of whatever division, whatever battalion you served in, if you're most recently trained in combat arms and you'd like to get on the trajectory of becoming a teacher, what a great way to begin. Maybe states could offer these jobs or maybe security companies in the private sector could make these jobs available and maybe veterans wanting to become teachers could take their teaching courses in addition to working as a security officer. And look at that, they're already in a building surrounded by other educators, getting real world practical experience, rubbing elder, you know, rubbing elbows and shoulders with teaching professionals. Right. All the while they're engaging and using their military skills that are fresh in their mind. For me, uh, I think this is, sounds really like a very good idea that, uh, you know, adapts the skills, you know, for that middle people in the military uh, you know, developed, you know, in, in one field of uh, action and adapts them to greatly to a very necessary, you know, use in the civilian population. I think that, uh, you know, I, and for me as a parent also, I would be a little bit afraid, you know, there is conversation now about arming teachers or maybe arming some other civilian personnel. I personally would be, would not feel good if my children are in a school with people who are not really trained to use the weapons that they are now holding. You know, while with veterans, I, I would feel, uh, yeah, no, but these are people who have gone through it. They've had the requisite training. They had, you know, they have a, a requisite ability to respond to dangerous and unpredictable situations. And I would feel certainly much safer as a parent, I think, knowing that professionals are involved in the you know, safety and the care of the children and not people who are, you know, who, who might not react the appropriate way, you know, given the fact that there's so many things that could happen unpredictably in these, you know, active shooter situations. Okay, so as we zoom all the way out, the big picture, it does add up. You know, we're looking at uh, hundreds of thousands of schools in the country. We're looking at uh, metal detection systems, which can be, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of dollars, uh, six figures per school. We're looking at, uh, you know, five-figure investments in security people for the school year. Uh, some total, you know, we're looking at somewhere around $13.3 billion in additional expenses every year. And that's just with some rough math that you've pieced together through various, you know, places like Department of Labor and such. Right. But as we look at that number and we say, oh, my gosh, that's a daunting number. Talk to me about how you feel that number is palatable, reasonable and certainly worth some investigation. Well, of course, you know, everything like that, you know, you start talking billions, you know, seems like a large number. And of course, there's a lot of discussion going on you know, all the time. But it's important discussion. What do we want to spend our money on, you know, as, as an American people? But I feel like spending it on the safety of our kids, you know, it should not be a big enough, a big discussion. You know, I think we, we, they are our kids are the future of our country. And I think that is one sign of civilized society that, you know, we're able to protect our young. And so comparatively, with the amount of money that we spend on, you know, various other expenditures and are thinking about, you know, judging by the current, uh, you know, budget from the White House, are thinking about investing into infrastructure, you know, investing more into, you know, military. And, you know, it, it, any of these numbers are still adding up somewhere under $20 billion. And I, and, I, and I think, you know, that's ultimately a small price to pay. Indeed. Paul Ratner, the title of your article, There's One Way to Stop School Shootings Without Taking Away Anyone's Guns. You can find it at BigThink.com. Your daily microdose of genius is what the website says. But uh, I appreciate your microdose of... 
uh, just level-headed thinking here and, you know, kind of extrapolating some numbers, getting outside this box that we tend to stay in and searching for some way to keep it safe. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm just hoping for, for common sense and dialogue to prevail. And that seems like a pretty good spot to end this podcast with hopes that common sense and dialogue will prevail. It would seem as though this time, whether it's because of the Florida teenagers or maybe our just gut-wrenching will to stop tragedies like this from happening, it seems like there's a lot more dialogue going on. I think everybody's going to have to come prepared to give an inch. And I think we're going to have to temper restrictions with some common sense as well. But if we can accept the fact that all guns are inherently dangerous and that banning them isn't the total solution, then I think we're just smart enough to roll up our sleeves and find a combination of things that will make our schools safe. I'm Phil Briggs, and I'll talk to you again on the next episode of Vet Story. I hope that they talk to, to the legislatures and the lawmakers, and, and I hope they, they really make them think. in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 